Hello out there, all you entertainment lovers. Welcome to another fascinating episode of Movies and Things. As you know, I'm your host, Kate and Barry. Thank you again for listening to the show. Like I said, if you are a fan of movies and things and you want to support support us by doing more than listening to the show, you can uh, find our fan page on Facebook. We're just... Uh, it's just called Movies and Things, a podcast. You can you know, become a fan of it on Facebook. Or you can just you know, send me an email or find my own personal Facebook. I don't really care. So anyway, so today we're, I'm kind of concluding my series of Halloween-based reviews. I know I've, I didn't get an episode out to you guys last week, last weekend, and that's because I was out at the Austin Film Festival and my weekend just got, it just got too busy to really record anything. I was going to record something, but I'm kind of taking what I was going to record for that episode and putting it into this episode where we're going to be talking about The Shining. And then after we take a quick break, uh, we're going to be talking about Castle Rock. Both are Stephen King based projects that are perfect to experience this time of year, if you haven't already. And since today is Halloween, I figured what better to talk about on Halloween than the master of horror himself, Stephen King, and some of his adaptations. So, like I said, I was down at the Austin Film Festival last weekend, and I'm probably gonna talk about that on a future episode. But for today, we're talking all Stephen King. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. And we're going to start talking about The Shining after this quick break. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about The Shining. So it's Halloween, and The Shining is a film that I try to watch every year, sometimes not even around Halloween, sometimes just for fun. But this year, I actually had the privilege of going to see the original Shining in theaters just a couple weeks ago. They were playing it uh, at the local movie theater. They were playing the original film, and I took my little sister to go see it. She'd never seen it before, so it was a totally new experience for her. And... Yeah, at the risk of sounding redundant, Shining's one of the best horror films of all time, which makes sense considering the source. As many of you know, The Shining is based on a book written by Stephen King, who is known as the master of horror and has given birth to so many other great horror stories aside from The Shining. You know, like, it... Things like that, Salem's Lot, lot, lots of classics. And so this film was uh, directed by Stanley Kubrick. And the interesting thing about The Shining film is even though it's considered not just a classic horror film, but a classic film in general, Stephen King hates this adaptation of the story which is hard to believe because it's such a masterpiece 
And it really just goes to show you how really protective authors can actually be at times of their work. But aside from that, so let's talk about what makes The Shining itself a great film. A lot of it falls on Jack Nicholson's shoulders. Most of the credit that this movie is owed goes to him. He does a very good job of playing a character, you know, named Jack also, as sort of this unhinged guy who at the at the start of the story or at the start of the film he's somewhat sane although there are hints to the fact that he abused his young son Danny when he was younger and the interesting thing about it is and this is one area where I could somewhat agree with King's opinion is that so in the original Shining book, Jack Torrance is meant to kind of start off as this mostly clean cut guy who eventually goes more insane as the story goes on. Whereas in this version even though at the start of the film Jack is definitely not as insane as he is by the end of the film, he's still pretty much borderline insane. Borderline insane and crazy. There's really not much question that his character is going to go off the deep end. But to Nicholson's credit and to the credit of director Stanley Kubrick, I think that that actually works in the film's favor. Because, you know, the, when you're writing a book, you have lots and lots of pages to explain gradual character development. And with a movie, you only have, you know, like this, two, two and a half hours or so. And so you need to kind of make it obvious that things aren't going to go right from the start. And I love that Kubrick and Nicholson took that approach. Nicholson's performance is it's become one of the most iconic horror performances of of all time again if not just one of the most iconic film performances of all time and it's just fun to watch him work in this environment it's interesting to see what his character will do when he and his family are basically isolated from the rest of the world Um, in many cases, literally and figuratively. One performance in the film that I'll say has not necessarily stood the test of time is Shelley Duvall as his his wife. Uh, She just does not... She just doesn't do a very good job. Um, you know, you got to consider the time period when this movie was made. Shelley Duvall, like I said, she's cast as Wendy. And at that point in film, there weren't that many very strong female characters. I think it's fair to say that back when 
The Shining was made. Strong female characters were not necessarily priorities in a lot of the films being made. And that was clear when it came when it came to The Shining because there are times where it kind of feels like all her character really does is just kind of scream and cry. And she doesn't even really take much action aside from running away. And that's another difference between the book and the film where I actually completely agree with Stephen King's side of things. Because, you know, in the book, Wendy is not like a feminist icon or anything like that, but she's more proactive, still protective of Danny, but also not afraid to, you know, stand her guard. And that wasn't at all the case with Shelley Duvall's performance in this film. To her credit, though, a lot of that can be attributed to Stanley Kubrick because it's been reported that while filming The Shining, Kubrick was intentionally cruel and mean to Charlotte Duvall in order to make her performance more scared, I guess, and make her more uneasy. And he actually did something similar with Jack Nicholson, too, uh, to help drive Jack a little insane. He knew that Jack hated cheese sandwiches, and so supposedly that was, like, the only food that he provided on set was cheese sandwiches. And I think that's pretty funny. But, so aside from performances, you know, what is it about this film that really has made it stand the test of time? Because... You know, horror movies from back then and now, you know, there are a dime a dozen. And, you know, the ones that stand out stand out for a reason. And The Shining is no different. I think what makes The Shining stand out is that even though it is a horror movie, and there are elements of typical horror movie tropes like, you know, Shelley Duvall's Wendy is a Scream Queen... You've got, you know, creepy monsters like with uh, the old woman in the bathtub and the two uh, twin girls in the hallway. You've, you've got that sort of thing. But The Shining is one of Stephen King's most uh, psychologically tormenting works, if not his most. That's what, to me, makes a good horror film, is not just having, you know, scary monsters and just scary scenes, but when the film really digs deep into the psyche of its characters, thus digging into the psyche of the audience. I think that's fair to say. You could definitely say this film dives into the psyche of Jack Torrance. That is for sure. Because the whole film is just about watching his sanity, or again, like I said, his what little sanity he has, you watch that deteriorate over time. And it's a fascinating character study. Secondly, I think what makes this film stand out a lot is just the overall 
unnerving feeling it has. It's the kind of film where you watch it and you can easily ask yourself, what would you do if you were in this situation? Because even, even though there are like a couple spooky things and things like that in the story, for the most part, a lot of what happens in The Shining is, you know, it, it could, a lot of it could actually happen. Because the main plot is just about a family who gets isolated from the rest of society in a hotel in the winter, which that alone could happen. And I think we've all been on those family vacations where sometimes we tend to get cabin fever. Maybe that's what Jack got, a really bad case of cabin fever. And... To me, it's kind of interesting because it's almost like the film, and by extension the novel as well, are really going to the extremes of what it is that cabin fever can do to somebody, which is not something that a lot of films go into. And I just, I I really applaud Stephen King for writing this story, but also Stanley Kubrick and all the talent involved for bringing it to life because it's just good that's it's it's tough this is one of those films where you know looking back on it and I've seen it multiple times a lot of times when I've seen a movie multiple times it becomes easier to see its flaws with each pass with each watch and with this one it's really tough to think about one because even though like I said I guess what my main flaw would be that would be Shelley Duvall's performance it is a flaw like in hindsight but I think that's more because of the passage of time and how Uh, we've grown as a culture and what we should expect on how certain types of characters are portrayed in film. So it's tough to really fault the film for that. It's just sort of noticeable. I think another great thing about this film, and this is something a lot of people have said, is of course the cinematography. This film alone has produced some of the most iconic images in the horror genre as a whole. You've got everything from, like I said, the two twin girls in the hallway. One second they're standing there, the next they're, you know, chopped up on the floor, bloody. It's really disturbing. Then you've got, of course, the iconic Here's Johnny scene where, you know, he's beating down the bathroom door with an axe. You've got the... I don't know if this is as iconic of a scene, but I feel like it's definitely one of the more memorable ones. Uh, The scene where I think it's... uh, It's either right before or right after the Here's Johnny scene where... I think it's right before, though... um, when she's running around the hallway and she passes by that one room of 
the man sitting on the bed and then there's the man in like the it's like a bear suit and they're doing something I won't I won't say what it is because I don't like to get too inappropriate on this show but they're doing something sexually suggestive and honestly that might be the image that sticks with me most just because of how disturbing and creepy it is but then, of course, you've also got the iconic scene towards the end where young Danny is running away from a tormented Jack in that, in that giant hedge maze. And I'll say this. It's probably, this might be a weird category to put it in, but it's definitely one of the most iconic or the most iconic hedge maze scene I've ever seen in a movie. Maybe second would be in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire where they're going through the maze. But I I like this scene for a lot of reasons. Most of it, even though Jack is in the scene, a lot of it really focuses on Danny. And I think that that leads to some interesting visuals and some interesting feelings because... When you focus more on Danny and you just hear Jack yelling in the background, Danny, where are you? I'm coming for you, all that stuff. It, it invokes a sense of fear both in Danny and in the viewer. Danny obviously is a lot smaller than Jack, and so if this scene were to focus more on Jack than it did on Danny, I feel like the audience wouldn't be able to put as much of themselves in that scene because, you know, a hedge maze to a fully grown human being like you or me is not really as scary as it would be to a small little kid. Whereas, you know, when you're a small kid, you know, everything's 10 times as big, so it's 10 times as scary. And... Honestly, in this one scene alone, Danny does what might be the smartest thing any character in this film does. When Jack is chasing him through the hedge maze and he can't find him, Danny finally realizes that the smartest thing to do would be to essentially, literally retracing his steps... And he starts putting his feet back in his tracks, going all the way back, uh, eventually getting him back to the hotel. So that way it would be much harder for his dad to find him. That to me is just genius because throughout the film, even though we definitely get a lot with Danny, we learn a lot about him, you know, because he's the one that has the shining after all. This is the first, this is really the biggest instance in the film where you really start to feel like Danny is more in control of what he's doing because for a lot of the film, he's actually, I mean, he's kind of possessed by The Shining. You know, writing red drum on the wall and all that stuff. So it seems like for a good chunk of the film, Danny isn't completely in control of what he's doing. And this final scene at the end gives him a chance to be in control. And that's good because that's something that 
he really needed. And I also think it's interesting that this is one of the few points in the film uh, where Danny is without his mother. I think it's like the only, well, it's one of of just a few other scenes in the film where Danny is even with Jack without his mother. His mom's not there to protect him. So there's no, you know, mom's going to save you. He has to think literally on his feet. And that to me is, it's just really smart. And it's, it's just a sign of a good script. That's another great thing about this film is the script. Like I said, it's got one of the most iconic lines ever uttered in film. Here's Johnny. We all know that. And then you've also got ones like, come and play with us, Danny. Lots of other good ones. And so the script is just so well written. Like I said, because the way these characters talk and the way they interact with each other, even even Shelley Duvall's character, Wendy, this they all feel like they're talking like real people. They don't feel like they're actors acting parts. Or they don't really feel like they're characters in a movie. They feel like real people. And that makes it a lot easier for the viewer to watch the film and in a way kind of put themselves into it. Even though the film is a horror movie and horror movies are not for everybody. I personally don't like horror movies either. The script writing is just one aspect of the film that actually makes it very inviting. And when I say The Shining is a horror film, I I said this before, it's not a horror film necessarily in the sense that it's like, oh, someone's coming to get you or like Freddy Krueger or Jason's coming to kill you. It's not really like that. There are elements of that, but it is more psychological. And I think that that's to the film's advantage because, like I said again, having more psychological horror allows the viewer to put themselves into the story. And The Shining is just one of those films. Like I said, I watch it every year. It always delivers. It's one of those things. It's one of those movies where I can go back and watch it every time and get something different out of it. The ambiguous final shot of the film, and I'm not going to give it away for anyone that hasn't seen it because there's a lot of debate about what the final shot means. All I'm going to say is it involves a picture frame. And... I'm not going to say exactly what it is, but my theory is that if you're someone that dies in the hotel, you wind up in the picture. But that might be overthinking it. I don't know. Everybody has different opinions on what the final shot of the film means. Again... (laughs) That makes the film so inviting to its audience that the actual ending 
is to be interpreted. And there have been so many, so many conversations about this film have revolved just around that final shot. And what does it mean? How is that possible? Personally, I don't think anyone's opinion on it is right. I just think it's a really good ambiguous point to talk about. And what's great about it is, you know, it it gets people to talk about The Shining. It gets people to talk about the ending. But then oftentimes, once you talk about the ending, you start talking about the rest of the film. And anything that can get more people talking about this movie. Again, it's a very famous movie, so it's not like it's, you know, some independent film or anything like that. But... This is a film that I really believe everybody should see. It's not for the faint of heart or the faint of mind, you could say. But it's an important film, especially if you're somebody who is studying filmmaking and film history. It's one of the most important films ever made. It's definitely one of Kubrick's most important films. Maybe even more so than Clockwork Orange. Or 2001 Space Odyssey. But anyways, like I said, The Shining is one of Stephen King's many, many, many great stories. There have been so many different interpretations of his different stories over the years. Every year it seems like there's a new movie coming out. This year we got the sequel to It. But last year, and this year it's continuing... Hulu released a new show set in the Stephen King universe called Castle Rock. And so I've seen the first season of Castle Rock and that could lead to a great discussion on some other Stephen King works. And so we're going to talk about that after the break. So welcome back to this special uh, Halloween Stephen King themed episode. So now we're going to talk about the new TV show Castle Rock. Season one finished up last year. Season two just started. I've done the first two episodes of season two. I haven't watched the rest of it yet. But so we're mostly going to be talking about season one with some elements of season two as well the first couple episodes um mostly season one though i would just say expect there to be spoilers for this for both seasons just because just expect it i don't know how to talk about a lot of this show without giving away spoilers so anyway so on to castle rock so castle rock is an interesting series because as anyone that's ever read a Stephen King book knows, or if you've read multiple Stephen King books, they all kind of take place in the same sort of universe. They all have references to each other. Sometimes they even share the same characters or the same elements or places, things like that. And in some ways, you could argue that for a while, Stephen King was like the Marvel Cinematic Universe of books. A lot of his stories had interconnecting themes, characters, things like that. And 
he did, there was a series that he wrote called the Dark Tower series, which kind of was more focused on combining all those different elements of his works into more concise stories. And then they did make the Dark Tower into a movie, but that movie didn't do very well. So while this technically, while Castle Rock is technically not the first live action adaptation of a Stephen King universe, multiverse, it's really the first one that's been good. (laughs) And that's saying something because it's really damn good. Season one, it's phenomenal. It pulls a lot of its story from the Shawshank Redemption. Um, a good chunk of this one, of season one's plot, is about how there's a mysterious boy who is being kept by uh, one of the guards at Shawshank has now escaped, and the people at Shawshank they try to cover it up because uh, the the guard that was keeping this boy prisoner, he killed himself right before the boy escaped. And so they tried to cover all this up at Shawshank, thinking, oh, well, Shawshank is such a, for whatever reason, respected prison, we can't have this getting out. Well, they don't do a very good job because the boy gets out and starts wrecking havoc and kind of messing with people in the town of Castle Rock. And so, like I said, a lot of this story of season one comes, it's not based on The Shining in that it's not, it's not an adaptation of it, but, or no, it's not based on, well, I said The Shining, Shawshank Redemption. It's not based on Shawshank in the sense that it adapts the story. It just takes a lot of elements from it. But I was getting to this with The Shining. There are elements of The Shining too. There's a character in there who's played by uh, Melanie Lewinsky. I forget what her character's name is, but she has a very strong connection to season one's main protagonist, which is a man, a lawyer named Henry Deaver, who is assigned to essentially be a lawyer to this kid that busted out Shawshank. And she has sort of a connection with Henry and some other things as well that kind of allows her to know what he's thinking. And they don't ever actually call it The Shining, so it may not quite be that, but... But it is basically The Shining. And it's really interesting because, like I said, you know, it is littered with a lot of references to Stephen King. Mostly The Shining or Shawshank in this case. And what's great about it, though, is that it's not just a show about referencing Stephen King. It makes lots of references, and maybe with the first couple episodes, it does it a little too much, but that kind of stops after a while. The references 
started to take a backseat to the main story. It was produced by J.J. Abrams, who is just on fire right now, having just done Force Awakens, and then now he's doing uh, Rise of Skywalker. You know, he did Lost. Guy, guy just uh, has made... He's doing lots of good stuff. Also did the new Star Trek films. So seeing him take on the Stephen King universe is awesome. What I like about this show is that it doesn't feel like it's taking, you know, the universe from The Shining film or it doesn't feel like it's taking from, like, the It films or anything like that. It feels more like the universe set up just in his books come to life. It feels like how one would imagine a Stephen King book looking if they were to put it in real life, if that makes sense. And like I said, it's got a great story. I actually don't want to give too much away because a lot of it is best experienced uh, through pure eyes. It's interesting because even though it's episodic and there is a plot that develops, it jumps around in the timeline a lot. Sometimes to a fault. There are certain episodes, one in particular, I think it was called The Queen. I think that's like season, it's like episode five or six. And that's a great episode. I'll talk more about it in a second. But certain episodes like that with those episodes, it can be hard to tell where in the timeline it is. And a lot of it doesn't get pieced together until the very end. It's that kind of show. It's one of those shows where, you know, every episode leaves more questions. It leaves the viewer questioning more. But then the answers sometimes that are given to those questions raise more questions themselves. And that's what I love about the show. Um, My favorite episode, like I said, was the episode called The Queen in season one. It focuses on the character of Henry Deaver's mother, who has all, basically has Alzheimer's uh, in the story. And so she sees things that aren't really there. She remembers things incorrectly. And so this episode is told, is totally dedicated to her character. And it's a story told from her character's point of view. And that's really fascinating because that episode alone almost feels like it could be its own movie. Because it's probably, of all the episodes they've done so far, it's definitely the one that feels like the biggest character study, at least the biggest character study within one episode. Because there is character development throughout the whole season, plenty of it, and good character development. But this episode in particular is focused on developing just one character and learning more about her and her past and how she sees things and how she remembers things. And it's just a, it's just a damn good episode. I'm not gonna give too much away though. What I'll say about the ending, 
this is where the show does kind of meander a little bit. It's not a bad ending. It's by no means awful. But even though a lot of things are explained, it does leave a lot up in the air, too. And on the one hand, that keeps in the spirit of the show. The show isn't really that much about giving answers. But on the other hand, it's kind of irritating. Especially given the fact that this series, it's an anthology series, like similar to American Horror Story, where each season follows a completely new storyline with completely new characters. So, at least as far as we know right now, there's never going to be, like... There are, there are reasons, and there is a conclusion to season one that does give some closure, but it's not a lot. And so it's possible that because now season two is carrying on a new story, that it's possible we may never get to have full closure on what actually happens at the end of season one, which is unfortunate, but like I said, it keeps in the spirit of the show. And so I'll talk a little bit about season two, because like I said, I've only seen the first two episodes and only like the first three episodes are out right now. So, so season two is much more closely linked with a specific Stephen King story in that this one actually is sort of a, a prequel of sorts with one of his characters. If any of you all have ever seen the film or read the book Misery with Kathy Bates and the film was directed by Rob Reiner, you will remember her character, Annie Wilkes, the one that, needless to say, had an obsession with a certain writer, Paul Sheldon. That's all I'm going to say. But, so like I said, we're only two episodes in, and this, in this season, there, it's mostly related to misery. There are elements of Salem's Lot as well. I'm sure those will develop more as the season goes on. But, so this is a prequel kind of talking about how Again, if you've seen the film Misery, you know that there's the part where Paul Sheldon discovers that Annie Wilkes has murdered a lot of people before in her time as a nurse. And so this season, from what I've seen so far, is kind of about that period in her life, about how all those things happened. And I I was a little nervous going into this season because Kathy Bates... Full disclosure, I just watched Misery uh, like a week or two ago for the first time. And something that I know, though, is that Kathy Bates really gave a groundbreaking performance in that. What I loved about Kathy Bates' performance was you kind of, 
there are parts of the film where you kind of love her character because she is so nice and sweet and you just want to give her a hug. And then there's parts where you realize she is not a lady that you want to mess around with, needless to say. And, you know, she's kind of bipolar in a sense. And so, you know, the audience kind of feels bipolar in how they feel about her character at times. And so, like I said, because she gave such a great performance in that film, I was nervous to see Lizzie Kaplan giving her performance in this prequel because I think Kathy Bates really just defined that role. And thankfully, Lizzie Kaplan does a really phenomenal job of playing Annie Wilkes. It's it's so hard sometimes when you're doing a prequel with a different actor to really make the audience feel like this is the younger version of the character they've grown to love. But Lizzie Kaplan, her performance pulls that off flawlessly. And the writing pulls that off flawlessly too. When you're watching the uh, first uh, two episodes, it does start to get to a point where you do kind of think like, well, she's this nice overprotective woman, but is she really like, you know, as violent as Annie Wilkes got in the original film? And you won't be wondering that for long because needless to say, if the scene in Misery where she cripples Paul Sheldon by slamming his feet against the wood. If that made you squirm, then the what she does to a certain character in this film, in this TV series, in the first two episodes, is... It'll make you more than squirm. It might make you puke, honestly. I, I really wasn't that squeamish when I saw that scene in Misery for the first time where she breaks his feet. But in this series, she, she gets very creative with an ice cream scoop. That's all I'm going to say. And man, when that scene comes, it, it's pretty brutal. It's... In my opinion, it is more brutal than the crippling scene in the Misery film. That's just my opinion, though. I could be wrong. But I think it's true. (laughs) But anyway, so... What I love about Castle Rock is, like I said... It really just brings Stephen King's imagination to life... In a way that the Dark Tower series was never really able to. It does have fantastical elements... It has, you know, certain, kind of like The Shining, certain parts of it are are the more typical, oh, monster's going to come get you, that sort of thing. But then a lot of it's very psychological, too. That combines the best kinds of Stephen King stories. Stephen King, he can do monster stuff well. He can do psychological stuff well. And Castle Rock, as a series knows that and it does both very well 
which is interesting because there have been adaptations of Stephen King that have tried to do, that have even failed just to do one aspect well. There have been some that have tried to do the more bonkers, something is going to kill you type stories and have not done it very well. There are some that have done the more psychological stories and haven't adapted it very well. This TV series takes both and does them phenomenally. If you're a fan of Stephen King, even if it's just the movies, even if you haven't read the books, you owe it to yourself to watch Castle Rock. It's a phenomenal show that honestly should get more awards than it has because it's just amazing. Great writing, great characters, great direction from J.J. Abrams. Just a phenomenal show overall. It has some rocky elements, but fortunately those are few and far between. And so that concludes my series of Halloween-based reviews. I hope you all have enjoyed listening to these and have enjoyed listening to the podcast in general. I hope you all have a very happy Halloween, and I hope this series of Halloween-based reviews has been a fun way for to help get you all into the holiday spirit. We've got two more big holidays coming up after this, and it's always good to go into the holiday season with a sense of optimism and just a sense of joy because, you know, the holidays coming up, they're not always the most happy and joyful that a lot of people think they are. They're, you know, sometimes people can get very sad around this time of year. And so I just wanted to do something that could bring me some joy, but also bring some joy out there to you guys, my listeners. So like I said, thank you very much and have a very happy Halloween.